Chapter Three of Orley Farm by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leonard Wilson. Chapter Three, The Cleave. I have said that Sir Peregrine Orme was not a rich man, meaning thereby that he was not a rich man considering his acknowledged position in the county. Such men not uncommonly have their tens, twelves, and twenty thousands a year. But Sir Peregrine's estate did not give him above three or four. He was lord of the manor of Hamworth, and possessed seigneurial rights, or rather the skeleton and remembrance of such rights, with reference to a very large district of country. But his actual property, that from which he still received the substantial benefits of ownership, was not so large as those of some of his neighbours. There was, however, no place within the county which was so beautifully situated as the cleave, or which had about it so many of the attractions of age. The house itself had been built at two periods, a new set of rooms having been added to the remains of the old Elizabethan structure in the time of Charles the Second. It had not about it anything that was peculiarly grand or imposing, nor were the rooms large or even commodious, but everything was old, venerable, and picturesque. Both the dining-room and the library were panelled with black wainscoting, and though the drawing-rooms were papered, the tall, elaborately worked wooden chimney-pieces still stood in them, and a wooden band or belt round the rooms showed that the panels were still there, although hidden by the modern paper. But it was for the beauty and wildness of its grounds that the cleave was remarkable. The land fell here and there into narrow, wild ravines and woody crevices. The soil of the park was not rich, and could give but little assistance to the chemists in supplying the plentiful food expected by Mr. Mason for the coming multitudes of the world. It produced in some parts heather instead of grass, and was as wild and unprofitable as Cleve Common, which stretched for miles outside the park palings, but it seemed admirably adapted for deer, and for the maintenance of half-decayed venerable oaks. Young timber also throve well about the place, and in this respect Sir Peregrine was a careful landlord. There ran a river through the park, the River Cleve, from which the place and parish are said to have taken their names a river, or rather a stream, very narrow and inconsiderable as to its volume of water, but which passed for some two miles through so narrow a passage as to give to it the appearance of a cleft or fissure in the rocks. The water tumbled over stones through this entire course, making it seem to be fordable almost everywhere without danger of wet feet but in truth there was hardly a spot at which it could be crossed without a bold leap from rock to rock. Narrow as was the aperture through which the water had cut its way, nevertheless a path had been contrived now on one side of the stream, and now on the other, crossing it here and there by slight hanging wooden bridges. The air here was always damp with spray, and the rocks on both sides were covered with long mosses, as were also the overhanging boughs of the old trees. This place was the glory of the cleave, 
and as far as picturesque beauty goes, it was very glorious. There was a spot in the river from whence a steep path led down from the park to the water, and at this spot the deer would come to drink. I know nothing more beautiful than this sight, when three or four of them could be so seen from one of the wooden bridges towards the hour of sunset in the autumn. Sir Peregrine himself at this time was an old man, having passed his seventieth year. He was a fine, handsome English gentleman, with white hair, keen grey eyes, a nose slightly aquiline, and lips now too closely pressed together, in consequence of the havoc which time had made among his teeth. He was tall, but had lost something of his height from stooping, was slight in his form, but well made, and vain of the smallness of his feet and the whiteness of his hands. He was generous, quick-tempered, and opinionated, generally very mild to those who would agree with him and submit to him, but intolerant of contradiction, and conceited as to his experience of the world and the wisdom which he had thence derived. To those who were manifestly his inferiors, he was affable. To his recognized equals, he was courteous. To women, he was almost always gentle. But to men who claimed an equality which he would not acknowledge, he could make himself particularly disagreeable. In judging the position which a man should hold in the world, Sir Peregrine was very resolute in ignoring all claims made by wealth alone. Even property and land could not in his eyes create a gentleman. A gentleman, according to his ideas, should at any rate have great-grandfathers capable of being traced in the world's history. And the greater the number of such, and the more easily traceable they might be on the world's surface, the more unquestionable would be the status of the claimant in question. Such being the case, it may be imagined that Joseph Mason, Esquire, of Groby Park, did not rank high in the estimation of Sir Peregrine Orme. I have said that Sir Peregrine was fond of his own opinion, but nevertheless he was a man whom it was by no means difficult to lead. In the first place he was singularly devoid of suspicion. The word of a man or of a woman was to him always credible, until full proof had come home to him that it was utterly unworthy of credit. After that, such a man or woman might as well spare all speech as regards the hope of any effect on the mind of Sir Peregrine Orme. He did not easily believe a fellow to be a liar, but a liar to him once was a liar always. And then he was amenable to flattery, and few that are so are proof against the leading strings of their flatterers. All this was well understood of Sir Peregrine by those about him. His gardener, his groom, and his woodmen all knew his foibles. They all loved him, respected him, and worked for him faithfully. But each of them had his own way in his own branch. And there was another person at the Cleeve who took into her own hands a considerable share of the management and leading of Sir Peregrine, though in truth she made no efforts in that direction. This was Mrs. Orme, the widow of his only child. 
and the mother of his heir. Mrs. Orme was a younger woman than Mrs. Mason of Orley Farm by nearly five years, though her son was but twelve months junior to Lucius Mason. She had been the daughter of a brother baronet, whose family was nearly as old as that of the Ormes, and therefore, though she had come penniless to her husband, Sir Peregrine had considered that his son had married well. She had been a great beauty, very small in size and delicate of limb, fair-haired, with soft blue wandering eyes, and a dimpled cheek. Such she had been when young Peregrine Orme brought her home to the cleave, and the bride at once became the darling of her father-in-law. One year she had owned of married joy, and then all the happiness of the family had been utterly destroyed, and for the few following years there had been no sadder household in all the countryside than that of Sir Peregrine Orme. His son, his only son, the pride of all who knew him, the hope of his political party in the county, the brightest among the bright ones of the day, for whom the world was just opening her richest treasures, fell from his horse as he was crossing into a road, and his lifeless body was brought home to the cleave. All this happened now twenty years since, but the widow still wears the colours of mourning. Of her also the world, of course, said that she would soon console herself with a second love. But she, too, has given the world the lie. From that day to the present she has never left the house of her father-in-law. She has been a true child to him, and she has enjoyed all a child's privileges. There has been but little favour for any one at the cleave, who has been considered by the baronet to disregard the wishes of the mistress of the establishment. Any word from her has been law to him, and he has, of course, expected also that her word should be law to others. He has yielded to her in all things, and attended to her will as though she were a little queen, recognizing in her feminine weakness a sovereign power, as some men can and do and having thus for years indulged himself in a quixotic gallantry to the lady of his household, he has demanded of others that they also should bow the knee. During the last twenty years the cleave has not been a gay house. During the last ten those living there have been contented and in the main happy, but there has seldom been many guests in the old hall and Sir Peregrine has not been fond of going to other men's feasts. He inherited the property very early in life, and then there were on it some few encumbrances. While yet a young man, he added something to these, and now, since his own son's death, he has been setting his house in order, that his grandson should receive the family acres intact. Every shilling due on the property has been paid off, and it is well that this should be so, for there is reason to fear that the heir will want a helping hand out of some of youth's difficulties, perhaps once or twice, before his passion for rats gives place to a good English gentlemanlike resolve to hunt twice a week, look after his temper, and live well within his means. 
the chief fault in the character of young Peregrine Orme was that he was so young. There are men who are old at one-and-twenty, are quite fit for Parliament, the magistrate's bench, the care of a wife, and even for that much sterner duty, the care of a balance at the banker's. But there are others who at that age are still boys, whose inner persons and characters have not begun to clothe themselves with the toga virilis. I am not sure that those whose boyhoods are so protracted have the worst of it, if in this hurrying and competitive age they can be saved from being absolutely trampled in the dust before they are able to do a little trampling on their own. Fruit that grows ripe the quickest is not the sweetest, nor when housed and garnered will it keep the longest. For young Peregrine there was no need of competitive struggles. The days have not yet come, though they are no doubt coming, when detor dignori shall be the rule of succession to all titles, honours, and privileges whatsoever. Only think what a life it would give to the education of the country in general, if any lad from seventeen to twenty-one could go in for a vacant dukedom, and if a goodly inheritance could be made absolutely incompatible with incorrect spelling and doubtful proficiency in rule of three. Luckily for Peregrine, Jr., these days are not yet at hand, or I fear that there would be little chance for him. While Lucius Mason was beginning to think that the chemists might be hurried, and that agriculture might be beneficially added to philology, our friend Peregrine had just been rusticated, and the head of his college had intimated to the baronet that it would be well to take the young man's name off the college books. This accordingly had been done, and the heir of the cleave was at present at home with his mother and grandfather. What special act of grace had led to this severity we need not inquire, but we may be sure that the frolics of which he had been guilty had been essentially young in their nature. He had assisted in driving a farmer's sow into the man's best parlour, or had daubed the top of the tutor's cap with white paint, or had perhaps given liberty to a bagful of rats in the college hall at dinner-time. Such were the youth's academical amusements, and as they were pursued with unremitting energy, it was thought well that he should be removed from Oxford. Then had come the terrible question of his university bills. One after another half a score of them reached Sir Peregrine, and then took place that terrible interview, such as most young men have had to undergo at least once, in which he was asked how he intended to absolve himself from the pecuniary liabilities which he had incurred. "'I'm sure I don't know,' said young Orme, sadly. "'But I shall be glad, sir, if you will favour me with your intentions,' said Sir Peregrine, with severity. "'A gentleman does not, I presume, send his orders to a tradesman without having some intention of paying him for his goods.' "'I intended that they should all be paid, of course.' "'And how, sir, by whom?' "'Well, sir, I suppose I intended that you should pay them.' And the scapegrace, as he spoke, looked full up into the baronet's face, with his bright blue eyes, not impudently as though defying his grandfather, 
but with a bold confidence, which at once softened the old man's heart. Sir Peregrine turned away and walked twice the length of the library. Then, returning to the spot where the other stood, he put his hand on his grandson's shoulder. "'Well, Peregrine, I will pay them,' he said. "'I have no doubt that you did so intend when you incurred them, and that was perhaps natural. I will pay them, but for your own sake, and for your dear mother's sake. I hope that they are not very heavy. Can you give me a list of all that you owe?' Young Peregrine said that he thought he could, and sitting down at once he made a clean breast of it with all his foibles, follies, and youthful ignorances, in two respects he stood on good ground. He was neither false nor a coward. He continued to scrawl down items as long as there were any of which he could think, and then handed over the list in order that his grandfather might add them up. It was the last he ever heard of the matter, and when he revisited Oxford some twelve months afterwards, the tradesman whom he had honoured with his custom bowed to him as low as though he had already inherited twenty thousand a year. Peregrine Orme was short in stature, as was his mother, and he also had his mother's wonderfully bright blue eyes. But in other respects he was very like his father and grandfather, very like all the Ormes who had lived for ages past. His hair was light, his forehead was not large, but well-formed and somewhat prominent. His nose had something, though not much, of the eagle's beak. His mouth was handsome in its curve, and his teeth were good, and his chin was divided by a deep dimple. His figure was not only short, but stouter than that of the Orms in general. He was very strong on his legs. He could wrestle and box, and used the single stick with the quickness and precision that was the terror of all the freshmen who had come in his way. Mrs. Orme, his mother, no doubt thought that he was perfect. Looking at the reflex of her own eyes in his, and seeing in his face so sweet a portraiture of the nose and mouth and forehead of him whom she had loved so dearly and lost so soon, she could not but think him perfect. When she was told that the master of Lazarus had desired that her son should be removed from his college, she had accused the tyrant of unrelenting, persecuting tyranny, and the gentle arguments of Sir Peregrine had no effect towards changing her ideas. On that disagreeable matter of the bills, little or nothing was said to her. Indeed money was a subject with which she was never troubled. Sir Peregrine conceived that money was a man's business, and that the softness of a woman's character should be preserved by a total absence of all pecuniary thoughts and cares. And then there arose at the cleave a question as to what should immediately be done with the heir. He himself was by no means so well prepared with an answer as had been his friend Lucius Mason. When consulted by his grandfather, he said that he did not know— he would do anything that Sir Peregrine wished. Would Sir Peregrine think it well that he should prepare himself for the arduous duties of a master of hounds? Sir Peregrine did not think this at all well, but it did not appear that he himself was prepared with any immediate proposition. Then Peregrine discussed the matter with his mother, 
explaining that he had hoped at any rate to get the next winter's hunting with the H.H., which letters have represented the Hamworth fox-hunt among sporting men for many years past. To this his mother made no objection, expressing a hope, however, that he would go abroad in the spring. "'Homestaying youths have ever homely wits,' she said to him, smiling on him ever so sweetly. "'That's quite true, mother,' he said. "'And that's why I should like to go to Leicestershire this winter.' But going to Leicestershire this winter was out of the question. End of chapter 3 of Orley Farm by Anthony Trollope Recording by Leonard Wilson of Springfield, Ohio